My guest on Church and Culture needs no introduction to those of you who are listening. Dr. Ray Guarendi is so well known around the country for his radio show, The Doctor is In. It's being played on over 350 stations and has exposure on the Sirius XM channel, channel 130. His TV show, Living Right with Dr. Ray, is seen on EWT in television really around the world. He is father of 10 adopted children, a clinical psychologist, an author, a speaker, and obviously a national radio and television host. Ray, welcome to Church and Culture, and we're going to talk about your new book, which is marvelous. I read it today, the whole thing, and found it fascinating. It's a book filled with wisdom, and I don't say that really about many books I read. It's entitled, Jesus the Master Psychologist, Listen to Him, and it's published by EWTN. So what inspired you to write a book with this title, Ray? You know, Dale, you made me real nervous at the top of the show because you said I needed no introduction, and then I thought, oh, no, he's not going to give me one. (laughs) But you did anyway. I wouldn't do that to you. I wouldn't do that to you. The interplay deal between psychology and faith is a strong one. Psychology doesn't agree with Jesus all the time because they're more enlightened, they think. But many times they are forced through research. Reality even convinces psychologists sometimes to look at some of the things that Jesus said, even though they wouldn't directly look at them. But what would happen is if they knew what he said, their research would confirm what he said. So that's the direction I wanted to take with the book. Clash versus compromise. Yeah, what you've done, though, is uh, basically uh, focus on a number of central teachings, but not just not just the uh, thou shalt type of teaching, but also the uh, paradoxical uh comments and the the sort of quizzical remarks that you know whose meaning is not uh, uh, entirely uh, obvious but you know you really drew me in at the very beginning when you made the point that uh, from a psychological point of view Jesus of Nazareth declaring that he was the son of God uh, would have by psychological standards be considered uh, insane, right? Somebody comes in my office, deal. I used to do evaluations for state mental hospital. Parents would typically bring in a late teenager, early 20s, or sometimes it was 80-year-old parents bringing in a 45-year-old son who had a struggle with mental illness. Now, when people are faced with institutionalization, even short-term, they're very careful. They watch what they say. They have enough insight to know, I better not sound too off the wall. <laughs> so it wasn't unusual for me to interview somebody, deal for maybe an hour, and not hear anything that would arouse my psychological suspicion. At the end, I might say, is there anything else you want to tell me? Yes. Did I tell you I'm George Washington? <laughs> I'm coming back from the dead, and I'm going to rise. I'm going to... Uh, uh, run for president. Now, right there, that's what in psychological parlance is called a delusion. It is a false belief that just will not be reasoned with. doesn't answer to reality. So you got Jesus supposedly saying a whole bunch of wise things, and, and even, even atheists and agnostics and non-Christians will say stupid things about Jesus, like he was a good teacher, he was a good man. Incredibly stupid. That tells me you know nothing about what he said. But the key is, the only way he could be a good man is if he was also God. That's the only way. He can't be a well, good man I, any other cause, way. Because he would only be a good man if he told the truth. That's it. And he'd only be a good man if he knew his identity. You know, one of the big things deal in psychology, and they, they use this as a latter stage of dementia. If you're so far gone, you don't know your own identity... You're really far from reality. So Jesus, if he wasn't lying about who he was, was so self-deluded 
I don't care what he says. You can't listen to what he says. Maybe you might like it. You might think, well, that makes sense. I'll run. I'll I'll run with that one because you know Gandhi had some good ideas, and so did Buddha, and uh, maybe even Muhammad had some. But but this guy, anything he says, I don't agree with. Uh, he's nuts, and I don't have to agree with it. The problem is, if you conclude he's God, you have to agree with it, no matter what modern psychology says. Yeah, because it comes comes at you with an authority of which there is no greater authority. You can't argue with it. You can't say, well, you know, I'm reading some stuff in psychology, and they're really saying that it's important to have a very strong self-image. And this whole idea that you esteem others higher than yourself, that, that doesn't seem to do well, in my opinion. Well, the problem you have there is that, once again, you're picking and choosing what God said, which is incredibly illogical for anyone who believes he was God. You're, you're stuck. Neil, basically you're stuck. You're touch, uh, you, Ray, you're touching upon what you call the paradigm shift that Jesus represented. And the paradigm shift being uh, one that completely obliterates the modern preoccupation with the self, correct? In psychology, self is the operative word. Self-image, self-esteem, self-promotion self-aggrandizement, self-authenticity. That is the word that prefaces so many other supposed psychologically healthy things, and now you have Jesus coming along and saying, no, <laughs> if you want to have a solid self, you quit thinking about yourself. Interestingly enough, Neil, the research on self-image basically says it's related to nothing. In the 70s and 80s, it really came of its own. It was born, and it gathered momentum. You walk into an elementary school, what do you see on the bulletin boards? I'm special. There's no one else like me. I'm the nicest flower in the garden. So we, we pound into these kids how absolutely wonderful they are, and Jesus is saying, you're infinitely valuable, which is different from saying you're absolutely wonderful. Yes. You, you've severed wonderfulness from the source of wonderfulness. If Jesus says, he who humbles himself will be exalted, and he who exalts himself will be humbled, does humility mean that you have to think you're a worm? Does humility mean, <laughs> oh no, oh no, Neil, don't, don't tell me it was a good book. Deal. It's not. It's not a good book. I, I mean, I really appreciate the deal, but but you know, I think you're getting a little carried away here. I mean, I'm just a tool in God's handiwork, and and none of those words were mine, and then they all just came from the Holy Spirit. So, deal. Thank you, but I really can't take credit. And this interview's over. Uh, <laughs> you you write you right. humility is not thinking less of oneself; it is thinking of oneself less. You remember <clears throat> the old movement called assertiveness training. Oh, yeah. That was ugly. I dated some of the women who took that. Oh, did they hurt you? Oh, yeah. Big time. <laughs> you had to watch what you said because they were prickly. They were hyper-vigilant to their rights being stepped on in any way that they defined it, correct? Yeah, and they defined it different ways on different days. That's right. You couldn't keep up with the new and improved reading. So what happens is that we found out, and this is a great study I came across, you know, that the psychologists sometimes have to agree with Jesus whether they want to or not. The study said that people who learn to turn the other cheek rather than jut their jaw out tend to be more at peace. They tend to be more easygoing. They tend to be more settled. Well, now, doesn't that seem to counterdict all that assertiveness training? Absolutely. Yeah. Neil, you and, say something I don't like, I'm going to let you know it, buddy. I'm going to come right back at you, because that's my right. Who do you think you are to even remotely assault any part of me that I think gets a value? And what do you get out of that, Ray? Yeah, you know, I'll tell you what I get out of it. Nothing but agitation. Right. Nothing but hypervigilance that makes me nervous and neurotic. 
And you also push me away as a friend or acquaintance. Oh, I'd have very few in my circle left. Because I have a feeling you can you be know. very obnoxious if you want to be. Oh, my gosh, it's wired into me. The good thing <laughs> I'm such a sweetheart. I think one of the best parts of your book is this discussion you have of forgiveness, of of so-called counting to ten before you react to things. Uh, I think that's a thread throughout the book, which is so needed. Uh, and I'll just be honest, in my life, I had to learn that the hard way because when you're involved in politics, you have some pretty tough stuff done to you, and you really want to get back. But we, when you realize get, trying to get back only hurts you more and does nothing really to uh, correct any kind of situation, then you suddenly realize that's useless. Deal, I have not punched anybody in the head since I was about 11. What about the elbows on the basketball court? Well, I've done a, I've done a, I've done a few of those, and, I, and I'll tell you what, and I immediately felt like crap. And many <laughs> times I pulled myself out of the game because I knew where it was headed. So everything that I've done to hurt people has come from my mouth. And 90% of what comes from my mouth comes from about the first 20 seconds when I have the emotional surge. The very, very hardest push to say it. I got to say it. I'm going to burst if I don't say it. It needs to be said. That's right. That is exactly right. I got to clear the air. Oh, what happens is it clouds the air. But if I, I found out over the years that if I can just shut up, I don't have to shut up for an hour. If I can shut up for 20 seconds, half of the urge goes away. The emotional surge dies quickly. It does, unless I rehearse it. Now, if I rehearse it, that's a different ballgame. But the actual emotional impulse doesn't last very long. And I've learned just, just, just shut up, Raymond. And then it's easier for me to stay shut up. If I try to if I try to say something in that first twenty seconds, it's almost guaranteed it's going to be regrettable. It's going to be something I have to apologize for. I feel shame. I feel guilt. I feel unfairly retaliatory. All kinds of nasty feelings will follow. I won't feel better. I won't vent myself and get the get all the bad air out like the psychologists say. But you got to let people know how you feel at that moment. Yeah. Well, I found out the repercussions are a lot uglier. You have a good sentence here. You say, by teaching no one ever to walk on me, I risk teaching them to either rock, walk way around me or to walk far ahead of me. In other words, isolation. You know prickly people in your life, deal. You know oh. that there are people that you just can't relax around because you don't know when you're going to say something it's going to bother them. You're going to find out three days later that they're mad at you for something you didn't even realize what you said. You had no ill intent. How hard are those people to be around? Well, they're so hard that you try not to be around them. I tell people, as Christians, we know very few people in our immediate circle that are hungry. We don't know too many that are in jail. We don't know all that many that are sick, really, that need constant care and visitation. For the most part, our lives don't have that kind of immediate urgency to help someone. But I'll tell you what we do have and what we can give is our personality. Christians should be the easiest to be around. We should be the most pleasant. We should be the easiest going flexible, we should listen. That's what we give people. You know, I'm not going to give you 10 bucks and pay for your meal. Okay, that's nice. They'll like that. But that's not necessarily going to make them like me if I'm a jerk to be around. What they, what you wanted to say is, Neil is, he's, he's just easy to be around. You know, he's the kind of guy that he listens to you, he asks questions about you, he cares about your life, he's not anxious to tell you about his that's, I think, what a Christian has to offer most people. 
And unfortunately, sometimes we don't do that real well. Well, you know, Ray, let me just say this. I get really annoyed by the people who uh, will tell me that I could have rebuked somebody more strongly, put them down, you know, more heavily, etc., uh, because you need to represent the so-called church militant. And I don't think the uh, church militant phraseology should be used to justify rudeness uh, and really uh, lack of charity and lack of forgiveness. This is my estimate deal, and it's a very, very rough estimate after 45 years of psychology. 98. Point two seven three five six percent of my urge to correct someone and put them in their place in no uncertain terms, at the very least, doesn't work, and at the very worst, blows up in my face. Yeah. And at the back of all this is the issue of how do we witness to the Christ who told us to forgive 70 times 7 times. (laughs) I didn't like that number. When, When Peter went to Jesus and said, how much do we got to forgive? I got to believe deal. He was thinking, oh, you know, the rabbis at that time, they say three. Three three strikes you're out. That's good enough. You don't, you don't learn after three. We're going to, we're going to shake the dust off our sandals. He figured, to tell Jesus, well, how about seven? How about seven? See, Jesus, I'm getting this. You're a merciful guy. I'm getting your teaching. It's not three. That's the rabbi's teaching. Yours is seven. And what does Jesus do? Jesus says, ah, Peter. <laughs> you're going in the right direction, but you're way off. Seventy times seven, which I wish was only 490, because then I'd, be, I'd have been done years ago having to forgive people. However, he meant completely. You know that. Yeah. I don't think, I don't think, you know, that I have to forgive completely. Um, matter of fact, I think that I probably only have to forgive eh, maybe half the offenses. Well, especially, if that, if that. especially if you don't feel forgiving, right? Right? Well, that's true. That's exactly right. I mean, right. how can you forgive if you don't feel forgiving? Well, couple that with this. I've realized that much of the time that I think I am magnanimous, Neil, in forgiving you, you know, the things you said, and I'm very magnanimous because I'm a Christian, and I'm going to forgive you. (laughs) I realized that there was nothing to forgive. You didn't do anything wrong. The, The offense was in my head. I took offense. You didn't mean offense. I took offense. So in taking false offense, I thought, well, I'll be a good Christian. I'll forgive deal. But there was nothing to forgive. And that's, for me, one of the things that I, I make my constant prayer to God. I, show me, please, where I'm doing this to myself, where I'm thinking, oh, I'm a holy guy because I'm forgiven 70 times 7, when, in fact, most of the offense was hanging in psychological midair. It wasn't there. That was that's a, that, that was a realization I had. You, in other words, you so, created the offense in your own mind, and it does not yes. reflect the reality of what actually happened. Yes, yes. This happens all the time in families. The hardest thing to read is somebody's motive. You can read their words. You can read the, the tone in their voice. You can read their body language. You can't read their motives. And when we attribute motives to people, we can be way off, way off. Neil, I get so many calls from grandparents who say, I can't see my grandkids anymore. Why is that? Well, my daughter-in-law is really upset at me. Why? Well, I said this. And it was a, it was a benign statement. Maybe mother said something like, well, do you think he's cold? Maybe we should put a jacket on him. And the daughter or daughter-in-law interpreted that as, you're commenting on the deficiency of my parenting. How dare you? I'm a good mother. Why don't you just keep your opinion to yourself? And that kind of stuff, that misinterpretation of motives, is really at the center of an awful lot of friction. And even me as a shrink, you know, my, my job is supposed to be to reflect motives. But I realize how hard that is to do. I don't know. 
So I always reserve the notion I could be wrong. And then what do you say to the person who just is too angry and too upset and doesn't feel, quote-unquote, any forgiveness in their hearts? Well, of course, you know the, the standard advice on that is forgiveness is not a feeling. It's an action. And I always tell them, well, the first step, the very first step to forgiveness is don't retaliate. That's the first step. Probably the easiest one, really. Don't retaliate. Verbally or any other way? Any other way. Just don't retaliate. Even if you think you have every right in the world. I wrote a book on anger once, and I had a chapter in it called Righteous versus Right-Filled Anger. Now, righteous anger is the kind of stuff Jesus did when he overturned the money changers' temples. I mean, that was a righteous anger. He was he was upset at what other people were doing to hurt other people. Rightful anger is, I'm upset at what I think you did to hurt me. There's the big difference. You know, Ray, so I, yeah. let me just say this. You can tell a lot about a person about what they choose to write books on. Is that a compliment? It's an observation. You wouldn't explain it if I took it as a compliment, would you? You write a book on anger, it tells me that's been an issue for you. <laughs> well, it was back when I was 12, Deal. Come on. You know? Oh, yeah, of course you put it all aside, especially when you slide into second base with your, your cleats high, you know, aimed at somebody's kneecap. Right in the belly. Right in the belly. <laughs> the belly. Ty, Ty Cobb style. God damn, I sharpen those babies. But you know, the good thing is, at my age, I rarely get on base anymore. And when I do, I'm so, far, I'm so far thrown out before I get the second, I don't have any chance to slide. But you'd, in your day, I bet you drew some blood. I'm in the Hall of Fame. <laughs> Local Hall of Fame. That's it. That's not very humble, but it's real. You know, I think of uh, what Socrates said about uh, that when you do, you do evil, you are the person who suffers the most from it. And I think that this is, I mean, what Jesus does is takes that insight. I'm not that he knew Socrates, of course, but that he blows it up kind of to a, a kind of universal perspective that really it is sort of at the center of the secret to, to Peace, it's sort of at the center of, of the secret to in to joy and happiness. Well, in another book I wrote, and I think I touched upon this in the, in the Jesus book, I have a psychological suggestion called close of the book. What that means is it, there's a relatively small handful of people in our lives that create most of our upset, usually the people in our close social circle. Spouses, parents, adult kids, cousins, brother-in-laws, relatives, close friends, work acquaintances, just relatively small people create 82% of your distress, your emotional upset, your hurt, whatever you want to call it. And I say to them, well, how long has your mother-in-law made these comments? Well, ever since I've known her. Well, how long have you known her? 24 years. <laughs> Don't you think it's time to close the book? Now, what I mean by that deal is not shun her, not kick her out of your life, not call her a toxic person, which is a terrible phrase that we psychologists throw around. It means you know what she's like. She's always been this way. She probably always will be this way. So why are you still getting upset? at the same level that you always have, given that you know what she's like. Amen. Amen. Book. And I see it all the time. And, you know, it took me a long time. I had a very tough dad. But at a certain point, I, I, I realized that's his love. That That is how he loves me. And he's not going to love me any other way. And once I once I realized that, we got along great. I mean, in other words, he didn't cause the turbulence in me that he caused for so many years. Much of what people do, deal is they do it the exact opposite way. <laughs> Jesus talks about this. What they do is 
as you build up in me, like I have a Rolodex, and as you say these things, you make these comments, you give your opinions, you put me down, you attack my religion, whatever you do, it builds. It builds and builds and builds and builds. And I get to the point where I say, that's enough. That's just enough. I, I don't want you in my life anymore. Now, you can do that if it's the neighbor lady's six houses down the street. Very hard to do that if it's your mother. Right. So I tell them, rather than, no, that was remark number 194 this year. <laughs> rather than do that, just simply say, yes, that was 194, and probably 195 is coming. I know that. Is <laughs> any different? with it. But people don't do that. The more the worse instead of the more the better. Love does not keep a list of wrongs, says the Apostle Paul. Well, the interesting thing too, Dale, is that hundreds of books have been written about what Jesus has said. You know, forgive, be tolerant, do not judge. They just say, this is what he said. Okay. But what I wanted to do was to say why does what he said work so well? Yes. I had a priest friend, and I asked a very very thoughtful guy. I said, Father, what for you is the biggest piece of evidence for the truth of the Christian faith? He surprised me. He said, the system works. Yeah. And I said, what, what system? Liturgical? Clerical? Hierarchy, what's this to be talking about? He said, the moral system. Right. He said, it works. We're going to take a short break. I'm talking to Dr. Ray Gurendi about his most recent book, Jesus the Master Psychologist. Listen to him. I've got a really tough question for him when we return after a short break. With Dr. Ray Guarindi, we're talking about his book, Jesus the Master Psychologist, from published by EWTN. Wonderful book, very wise. But Ray, you know, we talk about forgiveness. We talk about Jesus saying 70 times 70, or 7 times 70, which means, of course, always forgive. But, you know, as I've walked through this world, and I've been a Catholic since uh, I was 34, and I'm now 71. I don't find a lot of forgiveness. I really don't. I do find some remarkable, but in general, on a whole, I don't find much forgiveness. Now, is that just because I'm egotistical and think that everybody should forgive me for everything else? But it's also something I observe in other people experience the world that way, too. What do you think? Without getting close to Christ without believing he is who he said he is, without asking for his help, you will have a very hard time forgiving. And given that we are pushing God to the outskirts of our culture, why would I forgive you, Deal? You've done me wrong. I have no moral motive to forgive you. As a matter of fact, in all of human history, for most part, all teaching, I didn't have to forgive you. Here comes this Jesus God guy saying I should. Why? Because it's good for me. But without that, it's it's parallel deal to a guy that comes in my office, and he's going to leave his wife and four kids. He's met up, 28-year-old girl at work he works with, he's 44. He's leaving. He... He likes her better. He's happier with her. He doesn't like the four kids' demands. He's leaving. Now, what moral reason would keep him there if, in fact, he doesn't necessarily believe in this God-Christian stuff? He has no moral reason to stay there. His reasoning is, I, I want to be content. I want to do what I want to do. And I don't like it here. So for me as a therapist, sometimes it's very difficult. I mean, I have to I have to focus on the complications he's bringing onto his life, but I can't look at him and say, "Do you realize you're breaking a God 
ordained moral commitment. He'd look to be like, who in the heck are you? And I think that's, in a much broader sense, forgiveness. Why, why would I forgive you, Neil? Who's telling but, you to forgive me? But I'm going to push my question harder. I'm talking about forgiveness within the Christian community itself. I don't see a lot of it. Just you know, at least on the public stage, you know. In other words, uh, you know, you had this group of Christians who signed a document saying Donald Trump was morally unfit to be president, right? Yeah. Uh, there's, I mean, I don't know if that if that's a lack of forgiveness or it's just a, a judgment about the character of people who should hold public office. But on the public stage, when people fall, and even uh, even local stages, you know, church church level, community level, village level, and so forth. When people fall, they tend to be pushed to the outer margins and not welcomed anymore. Who did Jesus reserve his most scolding words for? The leadership, the Sadducees, the Pharisees. The religious leaders. And right. why was he so harsh on them? Because they were judgmental. Well, if I say to you, Deal, you know, Deal, I, uh, I can bench press more than you can. Uh, you, you come into the weight room, and I'm going to outbench you by 100 pounds. So what? All right, that's one sliver of existence. But if I say to you, you know, Deal, I am morally superior to you, <laughs> and in God's eyes, I'm a lot higher than you are. And uh, I'm going to tell you, Deal, where you fall short, because I am in a position above you to tell you where you fall short. That is so hideous. That is so spiritually ugly that if we want to know how bad it is, just listen to Jesus the way he talked to them. So you're absolutely right. I can call myself a Christian and turn around and trash you. That doesn't mean I'm a very good Christian. I can say I'm a Christian, but am I a disciple? There's the difference. I, when I have, when I have uh, witnessed forgiveness, not just in my life, but in other people's lives, it is the most powerful thing next to the birth of a child that I've ever I've ever witnessed. Uh, it's in in you see re, you realize that the Holy Spirit is real, that miracles can happen, that we don't live in a determinism. We live in a world where grace can break through, and forgiveness. You know, is that breaking through? Deal, I have. Now, people always wonder, what is your limit of forgiveness, right? Do you say, could I forgive the drunk driver who kills my daughter? Right? Could I forgive the person who rapes my daughter? My, could I forgive the guy who drug addicted my son? Could I? And you never know until you get there, and you always pray to God, if I get there, give me the strength, okay? Because, you know, there's a, there's a psych 101 principle. We are not very good at predicting how we will react yeah. in emotionally charged situations. You know this. Jesus said, I'll die. Or Peter says, I'll die for you. Oh, yeah, okay, Peter. All right, you're, you're real brave. <laughs> how did that work out? I had a situation in my own life just very recently. I don't want to get into the details, but it was beyond words horrific. Beyond words, I, I, I ask God, "Is you got you got to help me with this one? This big, you you got to." And and my prayer was, without you doing it for me, uh, this is rough here. Um, and fortunately, I, I I think He has because I I am not eaten up. I'm not eaten up by the circumstances. I can't tell you how many people have come to me and said, oh my gosh, I'd be devastated. I'd be devastated. How are you functioning? I'd be devastated. I say, well, I don't know. There's got to be something. There's got to be something holding me up here. And, and that's what I tell people. You, you just got to, you got to fall on God's grace. You can't do that yourself. When Jesus talked about forgiveness, and he talked about it a lot, I mean, he was gone against basically everything that the surrounding society and history taught. You don't forgive. You get back. You justice. It's justice. You, you don't forgive. You don't lay down your sword. He, he was so out of place in his teaching 
But yet, psychologically speaking, he knew that was the healthiest way to live. Healthy because you get into a situation where you want to retaliate, but retaliation leads to more conflict, more pain, more suffering, more division. And but that part, there's part of you that's saying, "I need, I have the righteousness, the right to take my revenge." And that that's exactly, by the way, what the Oresteia of Aeschylus was about, about that leading to nothing but death. And it was only when somebody uh, decided to, as you say, let the punch slip, I think is what you call it, slip the punch. Slipping a punch, yeah. I mean, tell our listeners what that means. I, thought, I found that fascinating, how you described that. People misunderstand when Jesus said, turn the other cheek. Uh, they attribute to him that you have to be a pacifist. That's not true. As I understand it, in Jesus' culture, if you slap somebody backhand across the face, that was an ultimate insult. That was saying, you're a worthless human being. And I think in one of the translations, he says, if somebody slaps you on your right cheek, give him your left as well. Well, if you're standing face-to-face to somebody, most people are right-handed, and I backhand you across the face, I'm going to hit you on your right cheek, basically, ultimately insulting you. Jesus said, give him your left. Don't give him the power to make you feel worthless. Give him your left. Say, hey, okay. So slipping a punch, when when boxers fight, they have to slip a punch. You, you stick your jaw right there and take that punch full force, you're going to go down. You're done. Okay? So you learn, to, you learn to slip that punch because it's like slipping a nasty word. It's like slipping an insult. It doesn't hit as hard. I, 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 I just kind of flow my other cheek. I turn my neck, so to speak. Um, that is really the best way to live. I, I, I don't like giving people the power to upset me. You know, Deal, you get email, don't you? Well, yes. People think you're the, you're the biggest wretch to walk the face of the earth. You get that, don't you? Of course. I hate when my wife writes me that kind of email. <laughs> here's here's the thing. I mean, you know as well as I do. If you didn't slip the punch on some of that email, you'd quit the business. You say, "I got to get out of here. I can't take this." The, you learned. You know, right? I, your book is just it, it's just chock full of wonderful uh, lines and. Uh, what I want to tell our listeners about it is that this book is a can be a problem solver for them. It can uh, make them aware of of habits that they have that lead to you know greater suffering, to greater uh, inner turmoil, and it can if 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 they're attentive readers. They will be challenged to uh, just begin, for example, that when they're in their situation where they're, uh, they want to use their, uh, their speech to put somebody down, just to pause for a second and let that extreme emotion pass, and, and, and you'll suddenly discover, no, I don't need to do that. It's not necessary. In fact, it doesn't benefit anybody, as you put it. Neil, you're... you're you have a bit of a curse, and the curse is that you're a bright guy, and the curse is that you have a rapier wit if you wanted to use it. So for people who can't think quickly on their feet, they don't have as big a temptation to retaliate verbally. You do, because you could. And so, as C.S. Lewis says, it, it takes a lot more strength to pick up a wounded cat if you hate cats. If you love cats, you can pick it up. It's not as heroic a virtue. For you to control your mouth, given that you could devastate somebody, should you so choose, is, I think, a higher virtue. So how's that for a compliment to you, brother? Well, thank you. It's like, it's like, you know, the virtue of magnanimity in the Greek world was only given to those who had a lot of wealth. You couldn't have magnanimity unless you were wealthy and could, uh, and could be generous 
with all that uh, you have to dispose, to give it, to share it with others. And your book it just confirmed so many lessons I've learned in my life about. I mean, your comment about nine, 98.9% of, of the hurts come from a tongue which weighs, what, a ha- two ounces, you said? Yeah, uh, like that. And, uh, and the stopping and, and reflecting on where, what does this really benefit me or him if I tell him what a jerk he is and show him how ignorant he is and, you know, uh, make him feel, you know, about an inch tall. Who benefits from that? And uh, does it make me a better man? Does it make him a better man? No. It does exactly the opposite. Yet you bring up social media, Ray. You just nailed that. I mean, social media is a place, because there's relative, not so much anonymity, but distance, virtu- you know, it's a virtual reality, so people don't actually look at each other in the face when they say this stuff. And what you see on social media is nothing but this kind of uh, celebration of put-downs. Am I wrong? I've called social media a child sticker system on steroids. Yes. You know, when you're a behavior problem kid, the shrinks tell you, well, put him on a sticker system, reward him with good behavior with stickers, which really those things don't work very well, anyway. but that's an aside. But social media... Look at the stickers you can get on social media for inappropriate behavior. Oh, you get applauded. That just shapes you into doing this kind of thing. Yes, stuff. it, it can, yeah. Neil, do we, Neil, do we have time to, um, deal with my last chapter, which, which, on death? Okay, yes. Let's, so, let, yes, we do. Let's talk about it. People will ask me as a psychologist what most perplexes me. Now, given that I've seen and heard just about everything that humans can do, you'd think, well, he's probably got to have a bunch. But I think the thing that most perplexes me, the one thing I don't understand, how is it, first of all, that so many people do not even look at the question of God or Jesus, especially when they're 82 years old, when they when they can hear the waterfall, and just out of self-interest, they would say, I might want to take a look at this and see what the evidence is, see what the appeal is here, because I'm not 28 anymore, and I'm not looking like I'm going to live forever. But they don't. Neil, there was a fascinating study. I saw it in First Things. They asked a group of elderly, how much longer do you think you have to live? Every single one of them, no matter what their age, said, at least one more year, which is fascinating, because you've got yes. one more year. Well, why would I think about God? Why would I think about Jesus? You know, I don't have to. It amazes me. I, I don't understand it. Uh, it perplexes me. And I'm thinking, just on the basis of your own infinite self-interest, if there is a God, you might want to look into this. But they don't. You know, Ray, I'm, I'm reading a book on D-Day invasion and on the the push to liberate Paris, Paris. and the author, a renowned military historian, comes back time and time again to how much the soldiers turned to God, whether turned whether to their rosary or to their Bible or to prayer groups. Uh, you know this this uh, truism about there's no atheists in foxholes, I think is is true. But what you're saying is. Why don't people realize they're in a foxhole? That's exactly right. And, you know, one can say, well, you've lived so long in a certain direction, or you've remade God in your own image. You know, there is, I call it the new atheism deal. The new atheism is there is a God, but he thinks just like me. Um, And that's a very hard atheism to get through. And I think a lot of people carry that all the way to their death. I'm good. I'm fine. God's going to welcome me home. I'm great. When was the last time you've been to a funeral that even remotely questioned that the person was going to be in heaven? Never. You can't do never. that. Uh, never. So, yeah, I, I, I just, it's, it flummoxes me. It truly does. I have, I have speculations about it, of course, 
But the idea that so many don't, uh, I've talked to many elderly, and they've been all their lives sort of, yeah, kind of God exists, maybe he does, maybe he doesn't. Yeah, I believe in him, but I don't pay much attention to him. I live my life pretty much as the culture says to live my life. And there's it. No more, no more. Do, do they simply, that. have they simply lost belief in, in eternal life that, that they don't, they're going to be going somewhere else after they die physically? I, I guess they don't entertain the thought. If, if you don't ponder this throughout your life and you're distracted by all the tugs and pulls of existence, nothing changes. My mother had a wonderful phrase one time. She said to me, we were at a funeral, talking about something, and my mother said, I guess as long as you're still breathing, you think you're going to live forever. I, I almost think that summarizes it. You know, I'm not... I'm not really dying yet, so I don't I don't have to entertain this stuff. It makes me uncomfortable. I did have a friend one time. She said this. She was dying, and she knew it, and she said, I'm not going to turn to God now. I've ignored him all my life. I'm not going to be a hypocrite and cover my butt on my last hours on this earth, and that was her attitude. That's how she went to her death. I, I you know, I don't understand that, and I... I really feel sorry for people who uh, breathe their last breath without any consolation of the love of God in the life hereafter. I, I just it doesn't it doesn't compute with me. That's right. You're where I am. And but but on the other hand, as as a, a psychologist for over forty years, you must have witnessed many times when under Stress, strained, and extreme suffering people do turn to God. Does it hold? Remember the uptick in church attendance after 9-11? Yes. How long did it take to drop back off? In three or four months, right? Yeah, yeah. So the question is, does it hold? You know, if God's going to be my cosmic crutch, when I realize that this life is fragile, I can turn to him. But when that crisis passes, that's one of the reasons people quit therapy, by the way. It's probably the number one reason. They generally come in in crisis or desperation. When that eases a little bit, they don't even have to reach great improvement. It just ease the crisis, ease the pain. They don't come back. They don't want to go at the core problem, which is no. gonna, which has not been fixed. Stop the pain. That's all. Stop the pain. So how much how much of our conversation has been sort of premised on the fact that contemporary culture uh, is fundamentally uh, hedonist in the sense that, or, or you could put it philosophically, utilitarian, and that is that everything is valued in terms of its pleasure or pain. It's very hard for us to be as wealthy as we are. We are the wealthiest culture the world has ever known by far. The people at our poverty level live better than much of the rest of the world's average, okay? So it's very difficult. I'm absolutely convinced it is so difficult to be materialistic and hedonistic and concatenate the pleasure after pleasure and pay attention to God. That is just so hard. Remember, uh, there's, a, there's a word that Jesus said in Luke that has always haunted me, Deal. He said, when I return, will I find any faith on the earth? Yes. That's always haunted me, thinking, is this, is this where we're headed? And that, that makes it all the more important for Christians to stand out as best we can in all of this, because as it gets darker, which I think it is, I think the United States has seen it today as a Christian nation, I really do, People say, do you think we'll return? I go, no, no. I think what we'll do is we'll get, we'll get into subsets. There will be Christians, there will be, there will be secularists, uh, there will be people who will pursue new age, there will be witches, there will be all kinds of crud. I think you're right about subset. that, by the way. Yeah, there'll be a subset. But that is, that's also an opportunity in the sense that if there ends up being a bold but smaller church, if there ends up being a church that isn't just in, 
that isn't just indifferent and going through the motions out of obligation. That's a church that will shine much brighter to others than the one we presently have. If, in fact, Pew was right, this was a Pew or Gallup poll, and he does these all the time, he concludes rather discouragingly that people who call themselves Christians don't live much different than the culture around them, with the exception of 10%. He called these 10%, he called them living saints, okay? They have more durable marriages, they're more content, they're healthier mentally and physically, they pray more often, they're more generous, they're more giving, they're more tolerant. He said about 10%. Now, I happen to think it's a little higher than that. I don't know I don't know how exactly he operationally defined that. But if that's true, and I think that's always kind of been true, that, that the faithfulness of people who really embrace it, who are disciples of Christ, always been a minority. But the good news is, minorities change cultures. You can't, mo- you can't mobilize a, mi- a majority. You can't. The majority I know of is that they still think Elvis is alive. <laughs> but short of that, it is a minority. And if it's a minority church that could do that, it's still possible. I am sad to say we've run out of our time, Dr. Ray. Uh, again, I want our listeners to know that you've published a new book, Jesus, the Master Psychologist. Listen to him from EWTN. And I just want to say I appreciate the insights uh, that you bestowed upon me today while I read the book and while I talked to you. And that's not a sen- trying to give you a false sense of, uh, of uh, self-importance. It's the truth. Well, Deal, don't take this the wrong way. But I, I have compared talking to you before and then after you've read the book, and you do sound smarter. <laughs> it's only because of my uh, privileged background, I'm sure. <laughs> so we'll have we'll have Dr. Ray Verindi on the show again in the near future. To all of you who are listening, uh, Church and Culture will be back here at this time on this day next week. If you have any comments or questions about church and culture, you can contact Deal Hudson at dhudson at AveMariaRadio.net.